Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of John, this precious gospel that we have been going through. John chapter 6 is where we are. Last week, we really had to shorten our time, and, and so we only got to one half of the sermon, so this week is the other half of the sermon. Last week, we started looking at the, the Father's gift being given, the Son being given, but being rejected. We didn't get to the, the beauty of the receiving of the gift, and that's what we're going to get to today. So I want to just jump right in, and I want to read these verses, and then I want to ask God's blessing on our time. So we're in John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 30, and we will read through verse 40. So the crowd says to Jesus, What then do you do for a sign? So that we may see and may believe you. What work do you do? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord... Always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me and the one who gives who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Father, what a rich passage. I pray that your spirit would clarify these words, the words of our precious Savior this morning for us. God, give us the gift of illumination so that we would see and truly see, not being like these crowds that though seeing, they didn't see, though hearing, they didn't hear. God, make us those that would see and perceive and believe. May we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this morning as we see him speaking and we see his beautiful plan of redemption. So open our eyes, God, please. May the hearers of this message hear a better sermon that is preached because they are receiving it from the Spirit and seeing it the way that they are designed to see. Give us grace now, we pray in your name. Amen. So the first point from last week, we saw verses 30 through 36 The father's gift being rejected. The father has given a gift and that gift is his son and his son is being rejected. How is he being rejected? Verse 30. Let's just summarize where we were last week. Verse 30. They say to him, to Jesus, after the feeding of the 5,000, after the walking on water um, and jumping back into the boat, after everything that happened the day before, they're there uh, on the seashore again saying, please do this miracle for us. And Jesus is saying, you don't believe me uh, for me. You want me for what I have to offer you. You need to just take me. And so they say, well, prove to us that we should just take you. Give us a sign. What sign are you going to perform that we may see and believe? 
If I was Jesus, I would immediately say, well, the sign that I just did, I fed over 20,000 people. But they're asking, and, and it clarifies in verse 31, they say, well, Moses gave us bread out of heaven constantly. It was every day for millions of people. So the sign that you performed yesterday was great, Jesus, but the sign that you need to perform is going to be greater than that. It needs to be every day for millions of people, not one day for 20,000 people. And Jesus gives them two denials and one affirmation in verse 32. Two denials, one affirmation. He says, no, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. It was God. God gave you the bread. It wasn't Moses. And the manna is not the issue. The manna isn't the issue. That's the second denial. You're terminating on the manna and saying, just give us bread. I just want God for what he can offer me. And Jesus says, no, it's my father who gives you the true bread. So it's not manna that you need to be terminating on. You're, you're missing the point. And the amazing affirmation is that my father gives the bread which comes down from heaven and gives life, verse 33, to the world. This is to everyone. It's an offer that's free to everyone. Come and eat of this bread. The crowd still don't get it, verse 34. And they say to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Always do it. If you're not going to give us the power to, to perform this miracle, then you need to do this always, constantly. Give us this bread. They're still missing it. They're making demands. We talked about how crowds, uh, unbelieving crowds make demands. They're still making demands. And Jesus zeroes in on the issue in verse 35. The first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John we have, I am the bread of life, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and life, I am the true vine. And so he says, I am the bread of life. You're missing this. It's not what I have to offer that you need. It's me that you need. Unbelieving crowds just want to follow Jesus because of what they can demand that he give to them. And Jesus says, no, it's not what I have to offer. It's me. Come to me. Terminate on me. I am the bread of life. And then the reason why we had to split this into two parts is we spent the rest of our time on verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. We talked about that being the essence of saving faith, and it is. We spent about 20 minutes unpacking the essence of saving faith. Saving faith is not saying, Jesus is good, he's my only hope of salvation, and that's it. It's a coming to him for satisfaction. It's a coming to him to be satisfied. It's saying, my sin has satisfied me, but it doesn't ultimately, and it will destroy me. Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy me. He's the only one who can, so I'm going to repent. I'm turning from my sin because it will bring judgment. I'm turning to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to follow him and not turn to these other idols that I have. We talked about that and unpacked that all last week, so if uh, you weren't here last week, just grab the CD or, or listen to it online. It's a crucial statement. Uh, we, we said that too often when we preach the gospel, we just, uh, we, we make a crisis, kind of like a turn or burn. You just you need to make a decision now. And, and a lot of people struggle with assurance because they just say, oh, I'll follow Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. That's true. That's good. But I think we need to make more of a, of a place for contemplation. Do you really believe that Jesus is more precious than anything this world has to offer? doesn't mean as a believer you always think that. But as a believer, now you're fighting for that reality, whereas you couldn't fight that before. My precious daughter said to me last night, struggled with some sin last night, very blatantly. And I was holding her and 
uh, with tears in her eyes, she said to me, Daddy, why is it so hard to obey? Very angry. And I was like, I agree. (laughs) I said, you know what? It's actually harder for you than it is even for me because you don't even have a new heart. Your heart can only love sin. Your heart doesn't know what it means to love Jesus. You need Jesus to give you a new heart. You need, you need Jesus to, to give you the new birth, to place in your soul, in your heart, a new heart, a heart that can now beat for him. Your heart right now is a stony, rocky heart that can't beat for him. You need a heart that can. And then even, even then, it will still be difficult, but now you'll want to obey him. You'll want that. And it was a really cool gospel moment because she said, without me saying anything, she said, dear Jesus, please give me a new heart. I want to obey. I said, Amen. Amen. She's getting there. (laughs) You who know her know that she does struggle to obey. (laughs) Bless her little heart. So, verse 36 sums it all up. Jesus says, I say to you, instead of you coming to believe in me for, for saving faith, you have faith in me. We talked about the two types of faith. This whole book, over 90 times, or 90 times, John uses the verb believe in this gospel. This book is all about believing, and he always gives us two categories, unbelieving believers and true saved believers. He's always giving us those two categories, John chapter 2, end of John 2. Um, Jesus was not believing in those who believed him because he knew their hearts. He knew that they were not truly saved. So what sets those two people apart? It's this verse. It's the way that you come to Jesus. Are you coming to Jesus demanding things from him? Are you coming to Jesus saying, I want some of you, but I also want my sin? Or are you coming to Jesus saying, I don't want any more sin, and I don't need the things you have to offer me. I'm not demanding that of you. I want you. And we talked about how when you're first saved, it's I don't want to go to hell, and thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And as you grow in Christ, it's now I'm glad I'm not going to hell, but I want to get to Jesus. I want to be with him. So that was all last week. Verse 36, he says, but you don't do that. You crowds are not doing that. You have seen me. You see the signs. You see the bread. You see me, but you don't believe. And this is where there's a crisis for Jesus. There's a crisis for him and a question based on his statement. If he's doing all of these miracles, he's performing all of these signs and wonders, and yet no one is believing, then is his mission being sent by the Father as a gift to the world, is it a failed mission? Did he fail? He's doing all these things, but no one's receiving him. This brings us to point number two, which is point number one for our intents and purposes this morning. How do you receive the Father's gift? Receiving the Father's gift. So we see rejection. That's clear. We understand what that looks like. Now we're going to talk about receiving the Father's gift. And this is why I believe Jesus goes where he goes. He says, you guys don't receive. You don't believe. You don't receive. You aren't saved. And it would be a great question to then ask, if some can see Jesus, if some can see his miracles, see his signs, and yet still not come to saving faith, Does that not suggest that his mission is in some way, shape, or form a failure? The answer is very clearly in these verses. However many people won't believe, God's saving purposes cannot be frustrated. They cannot be frustrated. Jesus' confidence in the success of the mission, God the Father sent the Son for a purpose, 
And Jesus' confidence in the success of that purpose being accomplished does not rest in the potential for positive responses from the crowds based on his oratory skills or based on his miraculous power. It is based on the fact that the Father will bring those whom he has chosen, and that cannot be thwarted. F.F. Bruce says it this way, Men's blindness cannot frustrate the saving work of God. God is at work by his grace in the world, and those who come to Christ come to him by, and he calls it the sweet constraint of that grace. So let's pick it up in verse 37, and I hope to unpack that to you. I hope that you can see that clearly, because again, if anything that I'm saying you cannot see for yourself in this text, then you should not take it. You need to take what the Bible says, what God says clearly in his word. It's not thus saith Patrick, it's thus saith the Lord. Verse 37. So you don't receive, you don't see, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. The beauty of this verse, it, oh, this verse is so, we could stop here. This verse is so magnificent. If you are a believer, Jesus is telling us how we got that way. Jesus is telling us how you got saved. Um, here's the more amazing thing. You don't even have to know that. You don't even have to agree with this. There are many people who disagree with what this sermon is going to be all about based on these verses. I, I believe that it's here, and I believe it's all over Scripture. We're going to talk about it. You don't even have to believe it, but it is what happened. If you're saved, this is what happened. The Father gave you to Jesus as a gift in such a way that you would never be lost. A lot of people say, excuse me, I don't like that. <laughs> Where's my freedom in that? Where's my freedom to choose? Well, I would say two things. First of all, you were never free. Ephesians 2 tells us that you've always been a slave to sin, so you've never been free. You could never have the freedom to choose Jesus. That's impossible. So, number one, you are not free as an unbeliever to choose Jesus. It's impossible for you to do that. Number two, when God does open your eyes... And you see the slavery of your sin, you, it's unmasked, the veil is pulled back, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. You see Jesus clearly for who he is, you see the gospel, you see your need for a savior, you see Jesus as the bread of life, and you go to him. God opens your eyes, and you're free to choose Jesus at that moment. And you will. You will. Look at what he says. All that the Father gives to me will come. It's not that the Father says, hey, here's somebody I want to save, and the person who's walking to Jesus somehow gets lost. I don't know where I am, and keeps walking the other way. No, they will come. If the Father gives them, they will come to Jesus. So you never had freedom beforehand. You were a slave of sin. And then if you are saved, you had freedom for just a tiny second to choose Jesus, but there was no way you could ever not choose Jesus, because if God opened your eyes, he was going to send you to Jesus. If the Father opens your eyes, you're going. You're going. You will come. Now, why is this important to know? This is important for a number of different reasons. But in context here, verse 37, there is assurance. One of the reasons why I love this doctrine is, number one, it's biblical. But number two, I love it because it gives me assurance. If the Father gives me to Jesus, then the end of verse 2, the back half of verse, or verse 37, the back half is the second part of this verse that can be true. It is true. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. 
I won't cast them out. Now, a lot of people have heard that and said, uh, I will certainly welcome them. If you, if you come to Jesus, you knock on the door, I'll open the door, I'll welcome them in. It's actually a misunderstanding of this verse. The verse goes deeper than that. Um, this verse is a figure of speech. figure of speech is called a litetes. And the figure of speech, you might not know it with that statement, with that word, but you know the figure of speech uh, if you eat a good steak at a great restaurant. Um, and as you're, you're finishing your last bite, you say, that was not bad at all. That's a litetes. What you're saying, you're affirming something by, by giving the negation of its contrary. You're saying, this is good by stating the negative portion of it. Um, to say, um, that man is a citizen of no small kingdom. You're saying they're a citizen of, of a great kingdom. What Jesus says here, I will certainly not cast them out. So what is he affirming? He's not affirming, I will certainly welcome them. The, the words for casting out are losing and throwing away. So what he's saying is, if the Father gives you to the Son, and you go to the Son, then the Son will never lose you. He will always keep you. He will always preserve you. All that the Father gives will come, and the ones that come, because they will come, so those that have been given will come, and those that come are assured that they will never, ever be lost. He will keep you. And if you have any questions about that, he's going to affirm that later in verses 38 through 40. He's going to keep you. Now, somebody might say, well, what about Judas? Judas was a disciple, and Jesus lost him. Two verses I would give to you. John chapter 6, verses 70 through 71. Jesus proclaims that he is a devil from the beginning. And uh, John chapter 17, verses, uh, verse 12, he says that he is a son of perdition. Um, he, he, Jesus knows he was never given by the father. So therefore there's no promise of assurance with Judas. He's never been given by the father to Jesus. So therefore no promise of assurance. Jesus never loses one of his own. And that the, the promise of assurance that is all through the pages of scripture is hinging on the gifting of the father. If the father doesn't give you as a gift to Jesus, if you got to Jesus on your own, then you can walk away from Jesus. But if the Father's the one who said, hey, you're going to go to Jesus, then Jesus, you have the promise and the assurance that Jesus will preserve you. He will keep you and he will never lose you. Verse 37, actually this whole section, uh, Jesus is going to say in verse 40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So you need to behold, you need to believe, you need to come. Uh, Verse 35, you need to come and eat. Jesus' words, as always, are beautiful and precise. The question is always asked. This is probably a question I get more often than not. Um, Did I choose God or did God choose me? Am I predestined or did I believe? Is faith a gift from God or did I choose to believe in Jesus? Which is it? My answer is always yes. Um, both. Uh, it's 100% of both. It's not 50-50. It's not 100 and zero. It's 100% of both. Um, I believe that's Jesus' answer as well here in these verses. It's something in theology that we would call compatibilism, that human responsibility and God's divine sovereignty are totally compatible. 
There's nothing incompatible about those. D.A. Carson says it this way. John is not embarrassed by this theme of predestination or calling or election because, unlike many contemporary philosophers and theologians, he does not think that human responsibility is thereby mitigated. Thus, he can speak with equal ease of those who look to the Son and believe in him. This they must do if they are to enjoy eternal life. You have to do that. It is your human responsibility to do that. But this responsibility to exercise faith is not for the evangelist, and I believe for Jesus as he's speaking, make God contingent. So in short, God is quite happy with the position that theologians call compatibilism. The question is not, do we have to believe in Jesus? Do we have to choose him? Yes, we do. That's biblical. The question is, how can we choose him if we're slaves to sin? How can we ever get out of our slavery to sin and say, I want Jesus, apart from God saying, you need to go to Jesus and compelling us to go? This is John chapter 3. This is why we spent a lot of time in John 3 with the new birth. What did you um, contribute? How did you contribute in any way to your physical birth? You did nothing. You just brought pain and suffering to your mothers. Um, You did nothing. So it is with spiritual birth, with salvation. You do nothing. God says, I choose to love you. I choose to save you. And now you choose Jesus because God wills that it be done. So Jesus says that all that the father gives to me, verse 37, will come to me. And the one who comes, so the father has to give you and you have to come and you will come and you will be kept forever. This is a gift from God. Faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift. This is found all over the Bible. But let's just stay in John. Just go to John chapter 8, verse 45. John chapter 8, verse 45. Just a couple verses. Jesus says this, Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you don't hear them because you're not of God. So how can you come to Jesus? You have to come to Jesus if you are of God. If God saves you and gives you, if the Father gives you to Jesus. So the person here in verses 45 through 47 who do not hear are not not hearing because of their human responsibility. They're not hearing because they are not of God. They're not born of God, John 3 language would say. So as Jesus speaks, it falls on deaf ears because they are not born of God. It's a gift. Uh, Turn one other place, uh, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 25 through 28. We're going to get to this in a, a couple months probably. Jesus answered them and said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But, so why does somebody not believe? Again, John's whole gospel is about belief. Why does somebody not believe? Verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them life, eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The most amazing statement in these verses 
is that we do not become sheep by believing. Rather, we believe only because we are his sheep. You see that? Verse 26, you are not believing because you're not my sheep. If you were my sheep, you would believe. So what has to happen before we can, quote unquote, choose to believe in Jesus, which we do, and we have the human responsibility to do that. What has to happen is we have to be his sheep. God has to give us to the Son. The Father has to give us to the Son. That's what has to happen. Being of God, being a sheep, they're the same. They're not the result of what we are doing in our believing. They're rather a result of what God does so that we can believe. So John Piper says it this way. The point here is simply to say that this sovereign work of God's initiative in creating faith corresponds with the radical thing that faith is. It is so contrary to proud, self-exalting, unspiritual, world-loving hearts that there is no way it could ever be self-generated. If we are to come to Jesus the way that Jesus teaches us to come, then we have to be drawn by God, and we will have been drawn by God. If you have that desire to come to him the way that Jesus demands, you are being drawn by the Father. He goes on, Our hate for the light will have to be overcome by God. Our distaste for the bread of heaven and the water of life will have to be transformed by God. Our love affair with the praises of men will have to be shattered by God. Our only hope to be saved is free and sovereign grace. Free and sovereign grace. That's why Jesus says, is this a failed mission? Though the crowds don't believe, no. Because the Father's going to give people to me. I'm going to save them. I'm going to secure them. The mission is going to be a success. Verse 38. Why else do we know it's a success? Go back to John 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We know that it will be a success because Jesus is going to accomplish the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is to preserve sons for glory. To preserve sons and daughters, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, Hebrews talks about. That's the will of the Father. He says, I have come down from heaven. That, that word, have come down, in, in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. And it's also, there's a preposition that's connected to it that's a very different preposition than you normally see. And the reason why I say that is because Jesus is emphasizing, I'm here. I'm here for a mission, and that mission isn't going to fail. And I'm here to save you. Without me being here, you couldn't be saved. There's an emphasis on, I have come here for a job. And the job is not to do my own will, but it's to do the will of him who sent me. He is our perfect righteousness. We talked about this in Family Bible Hour this morning. For 30 years, Jesus, from the moment he was born until when he started his public ministry, just living in obscurity, nothing amazing, even so much so that in Mark chapter 6, when his family hears him doing these crazy things, they're like, who is this guy? We we know him. He's a carpenter. He's nobody. He's just a normal guy. He was living a very normal, boring life. So much so that we don't even have record of the majority of it. But he was doing one thing that was unbelievably amazing throughout those 30 years. He was perfectly obeying the Father. He never once disobeyed his parents, had a bad attitude. He never once disobeyed. And the reason why we need to know that is because that perfect record of of obedience is our perfect record of obedience. Through faith, Jesus has lived a perfect, sinless life. And then on the cross, he says, I will take your terrible, sinful life. 
I'll take it on myself and I'll give you my perfect record of righteousness. So we need that perfect record of righteousness. That's why when he says, I have come to do the will of the Father, he's going to do it perfectly and it matters that he does it perfectly or else we have a tainted sinful record. We're going to take to ourselves a sinful record. That doesn't help us. So Jesus says, no, I have obeyed perfectly and that's what I'm going to do. So the mission is not going to be a failure. It's a success because of my obedience. How do we know that we will be secured? We know based on the Father drawing, the Father giving. We also know based on the Son's obedience. The Son alone is our righteousness. The Son alone is our one defense before God. He alone is our only hope. Verse 39, what's the will of him who sent me? What is it? What is the will of the Father? That all that he has given me I lose nothing. Of everything that he has given to me, I lose nothing. And since we know he obeyed perfectly, we know that we will never be lost. If we are truly saved, we will never be lost. And not even will I not lose it, but I'll raise it up on the last day. I'll raise it up. I love these these verses because they get very specific. Jesus says, of all that, I, that the Father has given to me. Of all that I have, I'm not going to lose any, but I'm going to raise it. More than likely, the word it refers back to that word all. I'm raising all of it, every single person, all, all of those who have been given. So we're talking millions of people that have been given to Jesus and have been saved. I'm not losing one of them. But it's not that Jesus sees us in some enormous universal sense. Look at what he says in verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So he goes, I'm raising all of it, and I'm raising you personally, individually. He's not just giving a call to everyone on the last day. Hey, everyone I've saved, come on, raise up. He's calling you specifically by name. He'll say, Patrick, come to life. He's raising you up specifically. And... He's raising your body up. There's, a, there's another take on verse 39. I, I think grammatically the it refers to all. But there's one other option that I don't think is wrong theologically. I don't know if it fits here in uh, this verse grammatically, maybe contextually. There's another view that says the it refers to your body. And the him refers to you, your soul. So the it is just your your. Uh, physical matter that really doesn't matter, right? It's just once your, your soul is in heaven, once your soul is absent from the body, your body is nothing anymore. And Jesus says, I'm not even losing that. It's, it's nothingness. It doesn't matter. When your soul departs from your body, your body doesn't matter anymore. And Jesus says, I'm still going to take it. I'm still not going to lose it. That's how much I will preserve you, that I won't even lose your dying, decaying body. I won't even lose that. The assurance and the praise that comes from these verses is monumental. Perfect obedience, given by the Father, preserved and kept by the Son, raised on the last day. It's unbelievable. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The security of the believer rests on Jesus obediently, faithfully completing what the Father has given for him to do. And the Bible absolutely gives us so many other passages that talk about that. But I love where John ends, or where Jesus ends and John records it in verse 40. 
Jesus still gives us the human responsibility aspect, right? He doesn't just end by saying, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride, because if you're, if you're chosen, you're chosen, and if you're not, tough luck. No. The call is still, so believe. Believe. Come. There are three things that Jesus says every single person must do to receive salvation. And they're in these verses. Number one, you have to come. Verse 37, verse 35, you have to come to Jesus. If you don't come to Jesus, you are going to be in trouble. You have to come to him. No one knows if they've been chosen. No one knows that. So you have to come. It's up to you to choose. It's up to you to make that response. It's in your human responsibility to go to God. That's why Isaiah 51 or 55 verses 1 through 3. Let every single person who, who hungers, who thirsts, everyone... Come and eat, eat bread with money that you don't even have. Buy milk, buy wine with money you don't even have. I'm going to give you the money, you're going to give it back to me, and I'm going to give you satisfaction. Everyone, anyone who thirsts, and that's everyone, anyone who hungers, and that's everyone, come to me. So you need to come. You need to come. The second in verse 40, the second command for every single human is you need to behold You need to behold that everyone, anyone who beholds, this is a call to everyone. Back in, earlier in verse 33, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the whole world, to everyone. This is a universal call to everyone. So everyone who believes, everyone who comes, everyone who beholds, everyone who believes. The word beholds, this isn't just a word for look. Sometimes our Bibles translate the Greek word for look as behold. This isn't just look. Uh, this is a great Greek word, theoreo, which means intensely, intently gaze and stare at, ponder. I have the picture of somebody kind of doing this. Hmm, just looking, gazing, trying to figure out what's happening. That's what this word is. Look intently, stare, figure something out. Contemplate, right? Don't just come to a crisis moment. Okay, I need this. No, contemplate. Is he really who he claims to be? Is he really worth following? Will he really satisfy all my needs? Will he really take care of me? That's what we need to do if we are going to be saved. We need to come. We need to behold. This is just like John 3. Beholding Jesus lifted up just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the stake. So too, Jesus was lifted up. And what did the people that were healed when the serpent was lifted up, what did they do? They looked. They looked. What are we supposed to do? We need to look. And just as the snake is a perfect representation of how the curse was even brought into the world, Jesus became a curse for us on the cross that if we stare at him and behold him, we will be saved. We need to come, we need to behold, and finally, verse 40, number three, we need to believe. We need to believe. And obviously, this is what John has been all about. This is the theme verse of John. This is what's on the banners here. This is everything. What is true saving belief? And we've looked time and time again at what it isn't. Obviously, it's not thinking that Jesus is amazing. Obviously, these crowds thought he was amazing. So it's something more than that. It's coming to Jesus. It's eating. It's drinking. It's being satisfied by him. It's believing in him that he is the bread of life that can satisfy all of your needs, that he will quench every thirst you've ever had. That's what we must do. That's what we must do. How is that done? This is, this is human responsibility. 
And this is God's sovereignty and salvation. We need to do this. How can it be done? It can be done if the Father gives you, if the Father calls you, if the Father establishes you. That's how it can be done. That's how it has to be done. So, as we conclude here this morning, just the second part of, of our sermon from last week, summing up these two points, Jesus says very clearly, I have come down from the Father as a gift to the world, and you are rejecting me. We saw the Father's gift being rejected. And now we see, but the Father's gift will be received. It will be received. This is not a failed mission. It will be a success because the Father is going to do what needs to be done so that it will be a success. And the Son is going to do what needs to be done so that it will be a success. Namely, that the Father is going to give and the Son is going to perfectly obey and preserve for all of eternity. So, if we can sum up these two points the way that we did last week, we could say it this way. In the first section, verses 30 through 36, God's gift of Jesus to these crowds is not received and is lost. But in the second, verses 37 through 40, God's gift of his people to Jesus is received and they are kept forever. Or another way to say it is in the first section, verses 30 through 36, it describes the apparent failure of God sending his son to give eternal life. In the second section, 37 through 40, describes the invincible success of God's purpose to give eternal life. Or to put it one last way, we can always describe what's happening in the world from two sides. God's side, man's side. God's responsibility, man's responsibility. So in verses 30 through 36, we are seeing things from man's side. They're saying, I will not come. I will not behold. I will not believe. I'm rejecting. But in verses 37 through 40, we're looking at things from the side of God's sovereignty. I will give you. I will draw you. I will preserve you. I will keep you. If you put them together, the main point of these two sections is that God's purpose to give eternal life through Jesus will never fail. It will never fail. Those who reject, reject because of unbelief. And those who receive, receive because the Father has given them. The Father has given them. So, let's look at those two as we conclude. Rejection. Rejection. We talked about this a little bit last week. Why would anyone reject? Why did the crowds reject? They rejected Very clearly, they rejected because they wanted Jesus on their terms. And Jesus said, no, 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 you can't have me on your terms. You have to have me on my terms. And they said, fine, we don't want you at all. It's not the way that they wanted their Savior to show up, to act, to speak, to think. They wanted him to perform works for them. They wanted him to do things for them. So my question to you this morning is this. Where in your life do you struggle with saying, I trust Jesus, but... If he doesn't give me this, I struggle. That's why we're going through the book we're going through, Idols. What makes you unhappy? What makes you nervous, anxious, worried? What makes you those things? Those are the idols that are still in your heart. doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that you have a struggle with unbelief, as we all do, and we will until we see Jesus face to face. So let's fight hard against that. Let's reject our own spiritual rejection of saying, Jesus, I want you to be this way, and you're not, and that makes me angry. But let's spend more of our time here in conclusion on receiving. Receiving. How do we receive? How do we receive him this way? It's the gospel. We receive him as our spiritual nourishment. We, we say, 
Okay, I've been living in sin, Jeremiah 2. I've been living in that which I thought would satisfy me. I've forsaken the fountain of living water, and I've hewn out cisterns for myself that can't even hold water. I'm drinking this nasty, muddy, dead, dying water, and I'm done. My, my quest for satisfaction has ended. Jesus, you're it. You are it. I am done with my sin because I see that my sin demands a punishment. And I am absolutely going to be punished in the way that God says I will be if I don't stop seeking the satisfaction there and I don't turn to Jesus. Can I just ask, in your heart of hearts, have you turned from sin to receive Jesus as your only treasure? doesn't mean you do it perfectly. But has there been a moment in your life where you have said, you've unmasked your quest for satisfaction, you've ended it, and you have said, what I need is only found in Jesus. What I need is only found in him. I need eternal life, and he, can only, he alone can provide it. I need salvation from sin. My sin deserves my death. And he alone is the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice that died the death that we deserve so that if we would simply believe in that finished work of Jesus Christ, we would receive that salvation. Have you done that? If you haven't, I would plead with you, today is the day of salvation. To turn to Jesus and to say, today, I trust in what you have done. Not in what you can provide or give, not a happy life. No, I trust in what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago the finished work that you did, it is finished, you rose from the dead, and I want that newness of life. I want, I want the freedom from the judgment, and I want to be satisfied by my greatest treasure forevermore. You can do that today. You must do that today. If you have done that, you are assured of your salvation because of what Jesus has done, because of the Father giving you. Can I just say this? The feasting never ends. You came at one point in your life and you said, that's it, I'm feasting on Jesus. And maybe for a moment you feasted on him unlike you have ever feasted on anything before, satisfied to the core, and your soul breathes a sigh of relief. And then you just keep going back to idols. The feast never ends. Every single day is a day. This is why we talked about this for a long time last week. Every day is a fight to be the happiest person I can be because I want to be satisfied in Jesus. All of the sin that is offered will satisfy, satisfy me for a little bit, but then it brings death. I don't want that. I want to be satisfied. And Jesus says, you come to me, you'll never hunger. You come to me, you'll never thirst. Never thirst. So, if you say this morning, man, I, I, I want that. I don't feel like I have a relationship with Jesus like that. I, I believe I'm saved, but I, I want my encouragement to you would be press in to Jesus. Press in to Jesus. Wake up in the morning and open his word, not as a duty, but as a delight to be satisfied beyond your wildest imaginations. Press into Jesus. He's got you. He's never going to let you go. He's never going to lose you. I, I love these verses. They're, they're John's form of Romans 8.30. The ones that God foreknew he predestined to become formed in the image of his son. And those who he predestined, he foreknew. Those he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. It's as, as good as done. You will be glorified. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to lose you. Secondly, the question that's asked a lot. How do you know if you're saved? 
How do you know if you're called? This, this is saying, I can't be saved unless I'm called. So let's jump from the saved part to the called part. How do I know if I'm called? Um, you don't know. You don't know. But you do know. Because Jesus has told us. Have you come to Jesus? If you've come to Jesus, you were called. If you've come to Jesus, you've been called. And if you've been called, you have the assurance that he's going to keep you. He's going to keep you. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Very, very helpful on this. Now may the God of peace himself, so him alone, himself, sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. He called you, therefore we are assured he's going to bring it to pass. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in John 6. He called you, so he's going to bring it to pass. There's no doubt that it's going to happen. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. And again, these verses are everywhere in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So he called you. You didn't choose him. He called you. Will himself, himself, without you, just by himself, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's got you. If he called you, he's got you. Philippians 1.6, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You can rest assured. So a lot of people then go to, well, I want to know that I was called. How can I know if I was called? You can't. But have you come? Because if you've come to Jesus, you were called. How do you know if you've been called? If you come to Jesus. The irony of this, this issue is that this doctrine is meant to be nothing but encouraging. Amazing assurance. This doctrine is meant to encourage. Without this doctrine, without this truth, we have no hope of getting to God. We have no hope because we're blind in our sins. Without God making the first move, we can't get to him. This doctrine is meant to be encouraging, but for some reason people use it to do the exact opposite, to bring doubt, to bring fear. What if I wasn't called by God? What if I wasn't given? It's not for you to know or decide. What is for you to know or decide is come, behold, and believe. You need to do that today. And if you do that, you were called. You've been called. Let me finish with just two verses. You can write these down. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. How are we supposed to respond to this, this gift of grace that God has given us in Jesus Christ? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God has saved us and called us. With a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. He saved us. He called us, not according to what we've done, but according to his own purpose and his own grace, which was given to us in Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to do with that? We are supposed to worship. We are supposed to say, God, why'd you pick me? Why'd you choose me? Because you're amazing. Not because I'm awesome, but because you're awesome. He called us. Let's go to him.
And then finally, one last verse, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter says this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Peter says, look, you want, do you want to know that you're saved? Do you want to know that you've been called? Make your calling sure. Okay, I want to know that I was called. Okay, first come to Jesus. And if you come, you were called. But I really want to know. Peter says, okay, I'll give you a test. Feast on Jesus. He says, practice these things. There's a whole list before of steps of obedience. Practice these things. You'll never stumble. You're going to make your calling sure. Because only those who say, I want to live for Jesus. Only those who love Jesus can keep his commandments, right? John 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we're commandment keepers, we're loving him. Now, obviously, there, there can be wrong motivation for keeping God's commandments. But if you're truly saved, you're going to be keeping his commandments because you love him, not out of legalistic duty. You're going to be saying, I love you, and I want to obey you because obedience is not only glorifying to you, but it's satisfying to me. I want to obey you. If you haven't been called by God, you cannot do that. You cannot say that. So Peter says, you want to make your calling sure? You want to have assurance that that the people that come to me that are most often unassured of their salvation, that say, I don't know where I'm at. It's because they're living in rebellious, stubborn sin, unrepentant sin. Well, it's a good thing that you don't have assurance. Because this verse says, you make your calling more sure when you see clearly, I'm feasting on Jesus above all things. Above all things. So, we come to Jesus, we feast on him, and we say thank you God for calling us. Because without that, there is no way we could have ever been chosen. No way we could have ever been um, finding our way to you. God, there's, there's no reason you should have called us other than for your glory and by your grace. Because of your great love. And that's why we say, come to Jesus. That's why we plead with our friends and our families, come to Jesus. Oh, how he loves you. That he would give his life for you. So we say publicly and individually, God, we need you. If you don't call, if you don't give us to Jesus, we can't go on our own. And if we can't go on our own, we are helplessly lost in our sin. So God, we take the step in human responsibility to come, to repent, to turn, to behold, to believe. And we preach that. God, I pray that you would give great assurance to those who have, who have come to Jesus. God, I I pray that you would give great assurance to those who now would say, I feast on Jesus and I wish I did more. God, may there be no condemnation in people who are saying, I don't feast the way I want to. God, may that be an evidence of grace that they even want to feast on you. And God, taking these two sermons together, I pray that we would be impacted for all of eternity by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come and we confess our need for you and we bow before you now as our only hope. We pray it in the precious name.